Hello, and welcome back to the White Noise Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, my name is Dr. Mohan Dutt, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. John Barkham and Dr. Alok Suchdeva. For first-time listeners, we are a sleep medicine-focused podcast that uses expert interviews to dive into the complex aspects of various sleep medicine topics. We're a free-form and generally unscripted, and therefore, I would like to take this time to say that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the views of the University of Michigan or the Veterans Administration. In addition, we do not provide medical advice. If you are in need of immediate medical assistance, please contact your personal physician or call 911. I would again like to thank you for listening. We hope this podcast not only entertains, but teaches you something new. In today's episode, we will be discussing narcolepsy with Matt Horsnell. He is a father of three living with type 1 narcolepsy and obstructive sleep apnea. Before diagnosis, Matt attended Belmont University studying exercise science and health promotion. Matt currently serves as a facilitator for two weekly wake up narcolepsy online small groups. In addition to narcolepsy and mental health awareness, he is a leading legislative advocate for the sleep community. Matt has been a guest on the Narcolepsy 360 podcast and a presenter for the WUN and Narcolepsy Network webinars. He is a Project Sleep Rising Voices of Narcolepsy graduate and was a featured nerd on their Narcolepsy Nerd Alert. Matt is a spokesperson for the Harmony Biosciences No Narcolepsy campaign, serving as a podcast host and blog writer. He has also consulted with multiple pharmaceutical companies serving the narcolepsy community. Also serves as a consultant for Cerno Health, working on actigraphy solutions for the sleep community with wearable technologies. We are very pleased to have Matt Horsnell here to discuss narcolepsy with us. Let's get on with the interview. Hello, and welcome back to the White Noise podcast after a, what is it, two, two yeah. year, two year gap? Lots happened, obviously, COVID. And <laughs> that's an understatement. Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> um, let's see, I, uh, I switched, I moved from, well, I'm still at the university, but I, I moved over to the VA and had another baby. So that was also, uh, a, a big life event, which kind of delayed recording for being like two years. Lots of stuff happened. Lots of stuff. Alok is in Tennessee now. Um, and he'll be kind of joining us in and out based on kind of his, his availability and, uh, you know, what works. So you're kind of just stuck with me and John, unfortunately, (laughs) Alok was a scholar of the three of us. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's just the three, it's just the two of us now, but, um, we're excited to be back. We're going to try, you know, we're going to keep the same format, but I think, um, in terms of topics going forward, um, we're going to try to broaden our scope a little bit and not be a hundred percent clinically focused and try to kind of reach uh, a little bit of a wider audience. I'm obviously still be talking about sleep topics, but uh, we'll have some other, um, not just clinicians on talking about sleep uh, and sleep-related issues uh, going forward um, to kind of mix it up a little bit and, and you know, bring some new blood and, uh, you know, different points of views to to what we, what we do here. Uh, and kind of in that vein, uh, our first uh, recording back, we're going to be talking about narcolepsy, but um, we are actually going to be joined by uh, Matthew Hornsell. Uh, did I pronounce that right? Hornsell? Hornsell. Ah, okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, no worries. Who is actually a, a patient with narcolepsy, and we're going to be getting 
kind of his perspective on his journey with narcolepsy. Um, so welcome, Matt. We are uh, really happy to have you here with us today. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, gentlemen. It's really my honor to be here um, when, when you reached out and wanted to know more about, you know, me living with narcolepsy. This, this is really why I started sharing my voice, um, to help raise um, the awareness about living with narcolepsy, what it looks like, helping reduce stigma, um, you know, kind of change what people's perception of the condition is. Um, and so happy to be here, happy to share um, kind of an open book. So, um, you know, happy to jump right in and, and talk a little bit about my diagnosis journey. Just just kind of let, let me know. Yeah, uh, I think we got to thank Jesse Cook for getting us together. He's like a matchmaker. Um, so thank you, Jesse, if you're listening to this. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we, we've communicated over Twitter. So we're, I guess we're, we're Twitter buddies. Um, so it's, it's glad to actually talk to you in person. Um, <clears throat> so we always start out by kind of asking some kind of get to know you questions. So mm -hmm. the first one is kind of like, what's, what are you into this month? What's your kind of, you know, what's your, what's your thing, whether it's a movie or a book or an activity or kind of, what are you, what are you into this month? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, you know, it's one of those things that well, while I'm definitely a person living with narcolepsy, I'm a dad uh, first and foremost, and um, the, the county that we live in has year round school. And so beginning tomorrow, we'll actually be going back to school. Wow, so uh, I've got two teenage daughters and a nine-year-old son. Um, and I don't know if they're excited um, to be back to school. I am excited they're going back to school because I, I primarily work from home. Um, and, you know, having the extra bodies is certainly can create um, for some creative working situations. But so right now it's about making sure that they're ready to go. We finished up some last minute, um, you know, little trips, wanting to make sure that we, we checked off enough boxes um, so that they can come away from summer feeling fulfilled, um, but also get a little rest and relaxation towards the end. Um, you know, I pop culture. Um, I, I like to joke that, that I, I slept through a couple decades there. Um, but, but I do try to keep up a little bit with, with some streaming services. Um, uh, my whole family and I, we just finished up Stranger Things. Um, oh, yeah. That was, that was an enjoyable series for us. Um, but kind of a great way to just spend some time together. Um, and just talk. I mean, literally I was like born and raised in the eighties. And so it was a flashback um, for so many reasons, but great to see that. Um, and, yeah. For me, I jokingly call myself the world's strongest person having narcolepsy with cataplexy. And so it's both a message about the strength that it takes to persevere, but I love hitting weights. Um, and so I've, I've been finishing up some summer lifting, um, trying to kind of push myself to stay in the best shape as possible, um, take an adapted lifting approach to, to make that happen. But so that's kind of, kind of what I, where I've been and what I've been doing personally. Um, so, yeah. Great. Um, busy. Yeah, very busy. Busier than me. That's, yeah. that's for sure. Uh, John, what do you got? Uh, well, I watched Stranger Things too. I enjoy that series in Child of the 80s. And um, I've been reading uh, Red Mars right now. Uh, it's by Kim Robinson. I feel like it's I've like, heard of that. It's like book. a series. Yeah. Some, I, was, I had a, did some travel. I needed something that I could just consume for sci fi. And, well, you were just in Alaska for like two weeks, right? Yeah. So. I was in Anchorage area and saw a bunch of stuff, you know, moose, bear. Caribou. It was pretty cool. Went, so, saw animals, came Yeah, back it was home. the longest vacation I've taken in about ten years. So um I'm happy to be back. But it was it was it was fun. 
All right. Um, and you didn't eat any bear meat, right? No, no, I didn't. Uh, didn't. No. No. <laughs> no. 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 Hyper. No hypervitaminosis. I tried fishing and I didn't catch anything. <laughs> Is it like fly fishing or just like regular old dock River fishing? River fishing, oh, shoreline okay. fishing. Yeah, I'm not the a fisherman. I am not. Okay. So. <laughs> um, and my my thing, I I don't know. Um, life's pretty busy with like two kids now. Um, that are young so you know there's obviously tv college football starting in like 40 days which is huge for me i got um i got season tickets this year um so i can take my my four-year-old um i can start taking her to games and kind of indoctrinate her um into being a michigan fan so she's got her jerseys and she's got she's got everything good to go so we're we're pretty pumped up about doing that um and you know we should have a good team this year and hopefully beat Ohio State again. Um, I think it's been like 933 days since they beat us last, something like that. Who's counting, so, right? Not me. Uh, so, so we're really look, uh, looking forward to that. Um, and, and that's, that's really about it. Um, I, I, along with you guys watched Stranger Things as well, and it was phenomenal. I was born in 84. So, um, right there, right there with you and being a child of the eighties. And I, I always love that brontosaurus sweatshirt from season one where you know how they change the name of the brontosaurus to the brachiosaurus and then he has this sweatshirt saying it's like brontosaurus so i don't know i i always think of it as a brontosaurus anyways um and then i guess the last last question for you matt is um what's like the best piece of advice you've you've gotten in your life (laughs) deep question It, it is a deep question. Um, I, I put some thought into it. Um, when I was learning to, to be an advocate, I got to meet one of my mentors in advocacy early on um, when we went to a trip to Washington, D.C. for some legislative advocacy. And as I was, I was fawning over um, her successes, her name's Julie Flygar, and she, she found Project Sleep. Um, one of the things that, I, that slipped out of my mouth was, you know, I, I really want to be the next Julie Flygar, um, just in terms of the executive you know, mind the leadership, the awareness she brought. She she just she stopped me, and and just completely kind of set me. Um, and it was what what I needed to hear. And Matt, time out. You need to be the first and best Matt Horsnell. Don't worry about being the next Julie. You know, there's 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 plenty of me to go around right now. You need to be the best Matt Horsnell. And I've I've taken that approach moving forward and tried to adapt my advocacy to fit who I am and and to share the best of what, what I can offer. And that's going to be different than, than another person. You know, some, some skills I have a little bit more in abundance than others. Others I, I struggle with. And so, yeah, just to be the best Matt Horsnell I could be. And that that's kind of the, the best advice that, that I've heard in terms of, of, of the sleep community and just how I, I try to approach life. All right. Thank you. And disagree with that. Live into your potential. <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, I think let's get started with uh, the the actual topic at hand. And uh, this is the first question um, is kind of well, you know, tell us a little bit <clears throat> about what you do um, kind of in the in the sleep realm of things. Yeah. So I, I wear many hats in the sleep community from um, volunteer work. I try to, to, to spread my time among the different um, nonprofit organizations, whether it be Project Sleep or Wake Up Narcolepsy and Narcolepsy Network, um, also with Hypersomnia Foundation. So I, I try to spend a little bit of time. So I do some webinar work. Um, I'm involved in some podcasts with the nonprofit orgs. Um, the thing that I do most consistently is I facilitate Wake Up Narcolepsy's online small groups. 
And so it's a chance for me to connect with people who either have been living with narcolepsy for decades. Sometimes people are coming in literally a week after diagnosis and walk with them on their journey. It's not about giving it medical advice, but it's about sharing the experiences. I went 13 years looking for a diagnosis. And if one person can benefit from the lessons that I learned along that way, it makes that journey at least enriching and more worthwhile. And so that's what I like to, to do professionally. Um, I've, I've tried to grow, step outside of sleep. I, I do some work with a company that does um, social listening through Facebook and Reddit to get a better understanding of what rare diseases look like, what's the lived experience, and it's all done through the patient voice. Um, so that, that's kind of the hat that I wear you know, professionally, um, but it still allows me to spend some time in the sleep space, getting to know other people with the conditions. Um, and, and I also do some work as a consultant for different pharmaceutical companies in the narcolepsy space. You are a busy man. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. Well, that's good. I'm glad that people have you then as a resource and as a guide. And I think that's kind of a good segue to get started is you had mentioned that it took you 13 years um, to get a diagnosis of narcolepsy. So can you kind of walk us through your initial process? Like what, why did it take it? You know, I mean, we know as clinicians that the, the, the average time from symptom start to diagnosis is like seven to 10 years sometimes. And it's longer mm -hmm. than it should be. Um, so why in your case do you feel like there was that delay and kind of what was being done for you? Yeah, it, that's a great question. So, um, you know, it was around age 12 that I would start to say that my symptoms started to impact my life. Um, shortly thereafter, my parents got a divorce. And so they, they were phenomenal parents and, and co-parents and in so many ways, but it meant that I was spending time in two different households. Um, so what one parent may not may have been seeing, another one may not have been seeing. Um, academically, I was able to keep up, but my day revolved around naps. And so I would wake up in the morning, um, I would take a shower, eat breakfast, and I would take a nap on the couch. On the drive into school, typically that was followed up with a 10 or 15 minute nap. Um, at some point throughout the day, usually twice per day during class, I would, I would take another couple of snoozes when I got home, I was going to, to sleep for another quick nap and then bedtime at like 8.30 or 9. Um, it didn't really like impact my thinking that I was doing anything different um, because other kids in school were also taking naps. Um, what I learned later is they were typically staying up till 1 or 2 in the morning, whereas I was going to bed early. Um, so I, I started to notice that though it was, I was having trouble sleeping at night. I was really tired all the time. You know, even though I was, I was physically active, I, I began working out about that time. And so I started talking to my pediatrician at the time about, you know, I'm just really sleepy um, and, and I, I just don't feel myself. Um, the, one of the things, the first answers that they looked at was, well, Matt, lifestyles happen, you know, life's happened. You've got this divorce. You might you probably have depression. Um, and so that was the first path that we went down. Um, over the next few years, I went from a pediatrician to my internal medicine doctor, who we tried a few antidepressants along the way. Um, some provided some relief, but not in abundance. Um, and by the time I was in college, you know, it, it was that we needed to refer you to a psychiatrist. Um, medications weren't getting the job done. So I, I think it was a couple reasons. Um, you know, I wasn't able to articulate that it was 
the sleepiness causing the depression, not the depression causing the sleepiness. Um, also, as I'm sure you guys know, there's depression meds are used off-label to treat um, narcolepsy and cataplexy. So some of my cataplexy symptoms were likely being masked um, during college as I complained about, you know, being sleepy and being kind of distracted that they, they recommended I might have attention deficit disorder. Um, so that meant I was on a, a lower, a low grade stimulant, which helped me function slightly, but it didn't solve the sleepiness. So I think a lot of, for, for a lot of reasons, my symptoms were masked. Um, it wasn't until I was 24. Um, I had just become a father for the first time and I was really struggling um, to balance like work being a dad, I was like, I, I've got to do something. And that's what led me to a sleep doctor. Um, and, and there's a, there's a good story along with that as well. But it was searching for answers, asking the right questions, but maybe not using the right language to help doctors understand. I feel like we see that a lot. I mean, I don't know. I feel like by the time someone comes to see us, it's you know, it's like they, hey, I think this person has narcolepsy. You need to evaluate them. It's rare that we will get someone who like de novo comes in just like for excessive sleepiness. And it's like, I feel like it's already kind of on the table um, by the time they, they come to see us. To some degree, I mean, I don't do pediatrics, so. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's also, yeah. Um, if we, uh, but um <laughs> It's tough because when we get patients, um, a lot of them have had testing in the military uh, of some nature, um, and uh, they're either one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Did you so? Did you have like the other kind of kind of classical symptoms of of narcolepsy? And you know, for those, it you know, yeah. the the you know hypnagogic hallucinations and the you know cataplexy, obviously, and excessive data, you know, that makes up the triad, yeah. you know, so. So, yeah, that's a great question. You know, it was the, the excessive daytime sleepiness was so pervasive mm -hmm. that I, it, it was hard to see outside of that. Um, but what I, when I, once the doctor first said the word narcolepsy during my, my assessment, um, you know, he actually called in someone who was, who was getting a fellowship in sleep medicine and, and said, Hey, you need to hear this young man explain what's going on. Um, and I, I, they were asking me questions about the head box. Um, you know, talk, I, I define myself as clumsy. Um, and what we, what we were able to kind of tease out was that there was a muscular component to it, that that cataplexy or loss of muscle tone, it was present. You know, I, I slurred my speech late at night. Um, you know, I would drop things with my hand pretty frequently. My knees would get a little bit weak. Um, I kind of pushed it aside and thought, oh, this is from, I'm just killing it in the gym. Um, you know, for, for what, what, I, what I was able to put forth at the time. And I never made a connection that that was a sleep issue. Um, but when I started to look up what that word narcolepsy was, what, it, what the condition actually implied, I was like, oh my gosh, I, that's you know terrifying episode when I felt like I couldn't get out of bed. I could hear the alarm clock going on. You know, that was sleep paralysis. You know, when, when I, when I started looking up, I realized that that the current nightmare that I had of a deceased woman falling on top of my chest and me waking up as if she was there pressing on my chest, you know, me gasping for air, not able to move. Well, that was a hallucination. Um, you know, the disrupted nighttime sleep 
you know, I had assumed was, you know, insomnia related, but that too was an example of, of how narcolepsy was impacting my life. So all of those things were swirling around, but it wasn't until I was in a sleep doctor's office that the dots were clearly starting to connect. And it wasn't until I looked into it, I was like, oh my goodness, this this is me. I had heard about narcolepsy in high school in psychology class. I studied abnormal psychology and we went over narcolepsy in, in college. I worked in a pharmacy and I knew two people that, that had very pronounced cataplexy episodes, but I never saw myself alone, um, in part because I had this, you know, model of, well, it's like what you see in the movies. Deuce Bigelow, male gigolo of someone like falling asleep in their suit. And it's, it's embarrassing to say that I, I, I thought that's kind of what it was. But to that point, that's that's why awareness is needed. Did you have sleep attacks quite often? Or like, you know, you mentioned that you would nap a lot. But did you just um, have flat out sleep attacks in high school and middle school? In in college, I would find myself falling asleep pretty frequently in class. For me, it was more, I knew sleep was imminent. And so I would put myself in a position to nap um, where I would just put my head down. So I, I wasn't falling asleep uncontrollably. Um, you know, I kind of anticipated and I, and I did something that I actually have adapted now, you know, living with narcolepsy back then was, was strategic napping. Um, so even in college, in order to, to thrive, I would find times to carve out little naps. Um, and, and that's how I, that's how I functioned. That's how I, I lived, you know, the best life possible without a diagnosis was, was by basically taking naps just throughout the day. Can you give us an idea of like, you know, when you first noticed you had symptoms of cataplexy, you know, like, so the sleepiness came first as age 12. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you started noticing cataplexy or so, was it not until you stopped the antidepressants later on that it was no longer masked? Right. So it, the, the effects are began in the antidepressant effects are began when I was in college. Um, I discontinued it about my, my senior year of, of college. And that's when I started to have more pronounced, you know, episodes. I was actually squatting in the gym um, and, I, I went down for a very heavy set of squats, rep number 13. It was this brutal 20 rep squat routine that I, you know, kind of makes me nauseous to think about it today. But I went down for rep number 13. And when I tried to come back up for 14, um, my knee buckled and I got terrified that I wasn't going to be able to complete the set. Well, that fear then triggered basically a co complete collapse. I was in a squat squat rack. Um, so so the weight was, was caught, but I had... 245 pounds come crashing down. You know, I was this mess of, of ego, sweat, and confusion. And, you know, I remember my partner, workout partner screaming, are you all right, bud? Matt, Matt, are you okay? And eventually I was able to say, yeah, yeah, I, I'm fine. I'm just having trouble moving. Um, and I dismissed it as a blood sugar episode. But looking back, it was a, a classic cataplexy episode. I've had a few more severe episodes like that since then for the most pervasive cataplexy for me is the partial cataplexy but in terms of full body episodes if that was my first experience is, with it is fear the trigger for that for you so i have a number of triggers um fear and confrontation are very powerful triggers for me elation is is going to be top of my list as well um best example for that was you know i got to see my daughter um, start uh, soccer as a as a freshman for her varsity team, and she scored a goal. And I, I jumped up um, 
you know, and screamed. I was so excited. And then I just came down and, and gravity took over. And I was basically like catching myself with my elbow. I, I rebounded pretty quickly, but you know, I was so excited to see her succeed. And it's funny because it's typically my kids um, who are triggering my laughter or my, you know, just the intense pride for them that will cause these episodes to to happen in public. I'm usually a little bit more cautious and on guard. So I try to step away, avoid confrontation, um, you know, not put myself in positions where I'm going to be spooked. Um, the last place you'll find me is a haunted house, but <laughs> those are some powerful triggers. That's, um, I think, a couple of good points I think you brought up. One is, um, you know, partial cataplexy is, not everyone has complete cataplectic episodes. And especially, I mean, in younger children, I think partial cataplexy is oftentimes missed and they can have it as simple as like cataplectic facies where they'll just have a little bit of facial droop. Or I think you mm -hmm. mentioned like even slurring of the speech and it's it's easily missed. Um, and so, and I think part of what contributes to this perception that, you know, narcolepsy is only cataplexy is like the Deuce Bigelow thing is because of movies and, and kind mm -hmm. of like the way this is portrayed. I think that, um, you know, people have seen too many videos of that cataplectic dog, you know, I don't know if you know, what I'm mm -hmm. there's, there's, yeah. this, there's this dachshund that has cataplexy and it's, yeah. it's, you know, and, and, um, and it's then not movies, really how it is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is how it is, but it's not that way for everybody. And, you know, and, and they're the classic symptoms of, of narcolepsy of, you know, hallucinations and, and sleep paralysis and, and, you know, associated symptoms, not everybody has those, you know, excessive daytime sleepiness, obviously you have to have, and cataplexy you have to have for narcolepsy with cataplexy or type one narcolepsy. But the other ones, you know, if you don't have them, it does not preclude a diagnosis of, of narcolepsy. And I think that, um, you know, we ask, at least on our end, we, as part of a standard sleep evaluation, we ask those questions, but um, if someone doesn't have those, it doesn't mean that they don't have narcolepsy. Um, and we shouldn't just be going based off, you know, a standard set of questions. So I think in clinic, it's easy because we have some very targeted questions that are very specific for it. But if you're a pediatrician and you've got 20 minutes for a patient and parents just got divorced and yeah. sleep in the two households, I can see falling into that right. quite easily. Um and then, you know, ADD is so common and, you know, I can see how the management kind of got where it got. Especially depression. I yeah, mean, it's, right that's now. a, that's a, that's a big, I think, confounder. Uh, I mean, and we know that narcolepsy is associated with depression just because of the symptoms and, you know, weight loss within the first, or sorry, not weight loss, but weight gain uh, mm -hmm. in the first year after symptoms kind of start is, is a big, is a big issue. So um, Matt, knowing how tough it sounded like high school was for you, did you feel like maybe there was some depression going along with it that kind of... Yeah. No, fantastic point. I'm glad you asked because I, I was going to throw that in there. I, I think depression was there and the the not participating in social activities, the, the struggling to connect with, with my peers, you know, I, I might get invited to go out, you know, on a Friday night. I, I was reluctant to go out because I didn't know when... Uh, you know, I would, you know, my body would be like, it's time to go to sleep. Yeah. Um, so it did impact. And, 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 you know, the, the divorce, the situation or depression aspect, that was, that was very real. And so, but it's so hard to tease out 
what causes what. Um, and, and I know from the work we do in, in small groups, symptom severity changes, you know, due to life stressors. So stress is a huge trigger. The, the more I have on my plate, you know, the more, you know, if, if I have a, a, a death in the family or if I, you know, have a job change, all of those things increase how pronounced my sleepiness can be. Um, and so it, it's so tough to tease out. You know, I, I was frustrated at first post-diagnosis. Why did it take this long? But once I stopped and looked back on it, I was like, well, they were, they were asking the right questions. That's, you know, it's, it's an awareness issue. Let's, let's talk more about it and hopefully we can identify some cases a little bit younger. It is hard to describe symptoms sometimes. I yeah. mean, even for our adult patients, they can't articulate, you know, what, what they want to say. I mean, a common one is like the difference between fatigue and sleepiness. I mean, that is one of the biggest, um, you know, are you fatigued? Or are you sleepy? Um, or even kind of getting to what you were talking about with, you know, sleep attacks versus taking naps, right? Like if you ask people who nap during the day, you know, do you have an uncontrollable urge to nap? They'll say, yeah, that's why I nap. Right. <laughs> and so that, but like that, you know, an uncontrollable urge to nap is kind of one of the symptoms of narcolepsy. But if I asked, you know, a hundred people, do you have an uncontrollable urge to nap? They, a lot of them would say, yes, it's, it's not a very, you know, sensitive nor specific question. Um, and, and so, um, I think that, uh, you know, I think it, it, you know, it comes down to what you're doing and that's, that's kind of patient education and, and yeah. just literacy in terms of overall, overall it's on both sides. Yeah, no, it's on, but yeah, it's funny. Like the best, best doctors are the ones that are very specific like about their answers because yeah. if you're like are you tired and someone's like yeah you're like oh okay <laughs> like yeah. you know it's you have to really uh peel it apart with patients because you can get carried away um with symptoms that are not really symptoms sometimes and then you're down another road and you're completely off track yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh and that and, and maybe a little bit of that is on both sides of the fence but um i did want to ask you some more questions about kind of the symptom onset. Yeah. You know? So you kind of noticed that it sounds like you noticed the cataplexy in your twenties, like in college. Correct. Okay. And you know what, you know, when you mentioned some nightmares, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of like really interested in nightmares. John's very interested. Yeah. In and then sleep paralysis, which are somewhat two different things. Can you tell me more about when those kind of started? Yeah. So I can I can trace back some very pronounced um, you know hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations back into my early teens, and so that would, as far as like when the symptoms started to come on, it was the sleepiness I noticed first. But having those feelings of you know waking up and not being able you know to move as sleep paralysis sometimes for me the the hallucinations and sleep paralysis do come together. Other times you know the sleep paralysis is a standalone. Um, you know, I would like when I was trying to drift off to sleep, um, you know, I, I would, he I could hear conversations and, I, and I've talked to some doctors about it and, you know, they explained that, you know, auditory hallucinations aren't quite as um, prevalent as some of the visual are with when it comes to the hallucinations associated with narcolepsy. But I would argue that, that it probably is more than what we realize um, because I, I would, you know, as an example of recently before, um, you know, my partner and I, I got married and I was a single dad for three years, I would like holler out at my daughters to, to please stop, you know, stop talking. Daddy's trying to sleep. Um, and I would hear them very groggily going, daddy, were you talking to us? We're asleep. 
but I would have, I, I would have put money on the fact that they were in the other ring talking, um, and, and you know, fairly loud. You know, you could something that you could decipher as, as conversation, um, not just you know inaudible, you know, kind right. of noise. Um, so, but but those those did date back, you know, the the very pronounced nightmares that bled over into reality. Um, I wrote a blog one time about, um, I call it a, a demon bunny, but it, I would see flashes of, of what I thought was a bunny running across the room and I would start to like doze off. Um, and it was this, I call it my albino demon bunny. And it, it was terrifying. Um, yeah. Once I learned that that was my mind playing a trick on me and that that wasn't real, that, that provided some comfort, but it, it still can give you a good startle. If yeah. you're not, if you're not expecting it. So kind of moving forward, what do you kind of, what happened? Um, once you were, once you saw the sleep physician, what was yeah. your, yeah. Can I ask one more question oh, yeah. about the sleep paralysis? So, yeah. so the sleep paralysis started when? So the sleep paralysis would have started, um, probably it could have even predated the actual sleepiness at a point to at age 12. Um, but it it was pronounced. Um, I would notice it often on it being able unable to move to answer my alarm clock during my high school years. I guess I guess, well, I guess one more thing before we move on. So um, it sounds like, and I, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like you didn't really have noticeable cataplexy until your twenties, um, but you clearly right. had an arc. So it sounds like you know if you had seen a sleep physician or a pediatric sleep physician, you would have initially gotten a diagnosis of narcolepsy type two. Um, yeah. And then as time progressed, you, they would have switched the diagnosis to narcolepsy type one, which does happen, right? So um, people with narcolepsy type two can develop narcolepsy. I, I don't know if it's a develop or it's just that the symptom starts, you know, at that point in time. Um, and so you can't make the diagnosis of narcolepsy with cataplexy unless you have cataplexy. So you would have gotten a diagnosis of narcolepsy without cataplexy, and then it would have kind of progressed when you were when you turned twenty. So, um. one more question: How often does the sleep paralysis occur? Um, at, at this point, it's made, like I was doing a, a, an app that I, it was helping track some of the symptoms, and it it would probably happen once every ten to fourteen days. Um, you know, still to this day, um, so it's been pretty steady like that. Over the years, um, yeah, it, the, the, like I said, the, the stress would increase the the severity of how all of my symptoms manifest, and sure. so there's there's been some you know job adjustments. Um, you know, did did any you medications know. you take affect it? You mentioned that some of them mask the um, catapoxy. Yeah. Did they affect? So yeah, the when I, I took sodium oxybate um, for a while, so it was Zyrum at the time. Um, and it, I did seem to see a decrease in the, both the hallucinations and sleep paralysis when I was taking that. Nice. It's so getting it's just, just curious. Which which one do you find more debilitating, the sleep paralysis or the uh, cataplexy? Um, cataplexy because it, it interferes when I'm when I'm trying to function and, and you know Public. be out in the the world. Yeah, yeah it, it can hit me hard. Um, you know if. I was out with with my partner, you know, for for a late dinner, or if we were, you know, kids have nighttime activities at high school, and so you know, I have to to walk a little bit more diligently so that you know my legs are underneath me, or you know that I I don't I, I do manifest too in the facial, so I don't have that slack jaw yeah. 
kind of you know would, would you would you say that the cataplexy is more debilitating than the than the sleepiness um i don't know for a fact i would say they're the sleepiness, you know, when I'm sleepier, my emotions are more on my surface. So the cataplexy is more prevalent. Um, but in terms of like, if I had to, if you go like Matt rank them, I would say sleepiness, partial cataplexy, but it's hard. Like I said, I can make an argument for both. Um, I can kind of fake sleepiness to some extent and, and like, oh, I'm kind of awake. And some medications do help more with that. But once partial cataplexy starts creeping in um you know when it's hitting i would definitely say no this is the worst part of an in one diagnosis yeah we make it i mean partial cataplexy affects you how often um it's it's a nightly occurrence that that i'll have some some manifestation usually it's not that severe uh full body episodes very infrequent for me okay we make such a big deal about with or without cataplexy and almost overlook a lot of the times the sleep paralysis that have yeah i mean i guess i'm kind of i i think it's because it's not a daytime symptom you know in terms of like affecting their daytime functioning but you know i guess the other way to look at it is if you know people just like with nightmares you know it can really affect their their mood and their well-being you know if they're they have a scary or uh, episode that's going to affect their daytime functioning as well um it, it i feel like we kind of view it as just like evidence that someone has narcolepsy and not as you said, like, okay, this is impacting the quality of, of your life. Um, and so that's probably some area that we can do a little bit of better job of as clinicians. So you bring up a good point, John. Um, mo- moving on a little bit, cause you started talking about medications. So I just kind of wanted to talk to you about kind of how did, how did your diagnosis go? Like what did they do? Um, and then what medications, you know, have you tried? Are you still on something? and and yeah. kind of your experience with the different medications. Yeah, so, you know, when I was diagnosed, this would have been 2007. Um, Provigil um, was kind of the, the first treatment that they, they started um, started off with. It was cost prohibitive at the time. It wasn't a generic for, formulation. Um, I, I remember getting some samples from the doctor, being very excited about. I also didn't quite comprehend that the treatment wouldn't make me all better. And I feel like that's an area that when I talk with people newly diagnosed, I, I really try to talk to them through is this is a grieving process. You will live with narcolepsy for the foreseeable future until there's some sort of you know, novel treatment approach. But so it started with modafinil. I went to the pharmacy the first time and it was, you know, $500. And I was like, at that time I was struggling to work it um, at all. And no so warning. I, yeah. yeah, it was, it was, it was sticker shock. And I was like, wait, so this I have to have medicine to to work and stay awake, but I can't afford the medicine, so I can't work to pay for it. How is this going to work? Um, my doctor w- was able to work with me very quickly on um, changing medications from the wakefulness promoting agent um, to you know a stimulant. We tried went through the started off with methylphenidate, Ritalin formulations. Um, saw some relief of symptoms with those. Went to um, the the amphetamine salts to see if that would provide. Um, some more symptom relief. Um, I was reluctant in large part due to some of the stigma that was surrounding um, Xyrum, you know, sodium oxidate. When I worked in a pharmacy, I'd, I'd heard some of the, the horror stories. Um, it was when it was during the approval process, I did a CE on it and was like, oh my gosh, that sounds terrifying. Um, you know, I eventually did start the sodium oxidate treatment when I was taking um, 
the amphetamine salts and I would do a combination of extended release and immediate release to as a breakthrough approach. Um, Wellbutrin was also prescribed um, to help with some of the underlying depression and it also has some wakefulness promoting right. properties as well. Um, and so that was the, the main stay. Um, I also would take some Zoloft um, as well. Um, and, and that worked with, for me for a while. Um, the, the sodium oxidate was very helpful relieving some of the, the disrupted nighttime sleep or not just some of it, but it pretty much kind of resolved that issue because of how it puts you in such a deep sleep. Um, I did have some, some very odd manifestations um, of, of some of the side effects. I would do a lot of nighttime eating. You're, you're not supposed to eat when you take it for two hours before I would find myself um, the, the joke was we had a chip gremlin that would come in the house and steal the chips and like sprinkle the chips in daddy's beard. And, and my girls would be so mad at me. And I would be like, I don't know who did that. And they'd be like, daddy, it's in your beard. And I, Oh, okay. So we know I did it. So you were um, actually sleep. I mean, you were sleepwalking and eating, you know, yeah, sleepwalking and eating. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, I, I would in my, my kids and my, my, uh, their mom at the time, would find me asleep against the wall um, as I was trying to come out of the kitchen, never quite made it back because it, it, you need to be in bed when you take it um, outside of like a trip to the restroom. Um, and, and it started to increase some of the anxiety. Um, looking back, probably would have been warranted a, a reduction in some of the stimulant dose I was taking as well because I didn't need that same level of, of wakefulness promoting because I was getting more consolidated sleep at night. Um, eventually discontinued that um after my, my kid's mom moved out i was found myself being a single dad of three um and i couldn't be out of commission and right. possibly wandering through the kitchen um you know in the middle of the night alone um i i started to have some accelerated heart rate issues some tachycardia associated with the amphetamine salts and so discontinued those and moved to modafinil um i, I didn't wasn't getting maybe the same level of wakefulness I was before, but it was a little bit more consistent. There wasn't as much ups and downs. Um, for me, the one of the great new medications that I've added is patolescent, the wakings. Um, it I take it same time every day. It gives me more quality wakefulness. It, it I don't it doesn't have the ups and downs that the vendafinil does um, or any of the stimulants um, you know did but it allows me to be more functional throughout the day. So I can have this conversation with you guys in the afternoon and still feel like it's going to be productive and that I'm able to engage. I can sit down and, and work, have three or four hours of meetings throughout the day and make it through. Um, a big part of my treatment is the naps itself. Um, so strategic napping and I call it rescue napping. So throughout the day, if I'm struggling, I can kind of take a nap, but I usually plan two 15-minute naps to kind of help navigate life um you know and be proactive to to knock out some of that that room deficit I'm experiencing. that's <clears throat> going that's it, that's really interesting um i think one going back to what you said i think it's a really important point is that you know it's living with narcolepsy the medications aren't going to make you 100 percent better and i try to you know make that abundantly clear for I guess anyone that I'm treating with a central disorder of hypersomnia whether it's narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia is that I think my goal in treatment is to get you to be able to like live your life um 
and you're still likely going to be tired. Uh, that's just unfortunately the hand that we've been dealt. It's just that, you know, you can, you can make it through the day. Uh, you can have a job, you can spend time with your family um, and you can enjoy, um, but there's still likely going to be that underlying tiredness or, you know, that yeah. that's going to be you're gonna there. Need to nap. Yeah. You're going to need to. That's a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. And I think that, you know, setting expectations at the beginning of treatment is really important with this because, you know, I think that <clears throat> oftentimes, you know, we'll see patients, um, on, you know, on our end and they'll, they'll be like, oh, this medication doesn't work. Um, and it's mm -hmm. well, because I'm still tired and, and I'm like, well, are you, you know, are you able to do the things that you want to do? Are you able to have a job? Are you, you know, are you functioning? And then in my opinion, that's working. Um, right. what would you, I mean, you know, now, I, if I could have given you a standing ovation without, you know, disrupting the recording, <laughs> I would have um, when you said expectations. And I feel that that's, I'm so glad to hear that coming from um, the medical community because it's something we talk about consistently. You know, I, I had to, to grieve the loss of, of dreams that I had um, before my diagnosis, you know, things I thought I was going to accomplish, but I've been able to go out and dream some new ones. But it's all about living within my expectations, prioritizing what's most essential for me so my family time my time with my partner you know those are all essential to me living my best life um but yeah expectations are essential i'm glad that, to hear you guys talking about that because you are gonna have it's going to disrupt your life um you're gonna have to come to accept that to a level um you know for me those naps like i said they're as essential it's frustrating because it does interfere with, you know, what I might want to be doing at a particular time, but it makes, it, it, it just helps me balance um, just my day so that I, I don't have as much ups and downs. But I, I love how you said that, yeah, expectations, it's going to hit you. you. You're going to have to learn to adjust a little bit. And that's, that's going to have to be part of life. I think um, that going into, um, the the medications i think that it sounds like you've tried so the asm just came out with um a revised guidelines for the treatment of central mm -hmm. disorders of hypersomnia and i think that the four medications that they and we'll link to this and there's another really good paper but i think it's i think it's by lynn marie trotty on mm -hmm. um narcolepsy i think it, she wrote it it's in continuum um and i think she did it with isabel arnoff um who was phenomenal at the sleep conference i'm not sure if you got to listen to her lecture on idiopathic hypersomnia it was really good but um the uh so you know modafinil um soriamfetal wakex or pitolescent and and um sodium oxybate are the four medications that they have listed as you know strong recommendation and i think uh yes. the, the the amphetamine salts and the methylphenidate have actually moved to, to conditional now mm -hmm. um and then now there's no recommendation for um the antidepressants or things like clarithromycin. Um, so it's and yeah. it sounds like you've you've pretty much run the gamut except for soriamfetal in terms yeah. of in terms of medication. Um, so did you? I guess going to the Zyrem because I feel like in my in my mind, um, if some if I saw someone with narcolepsy with cataplexy um, now in in my my mind's algorithm, I think I would first jump to um, sodium oxybate to yeah. treat both daytime sleepiness, poor, you know, and really get that benefit in terms of like consolidated sleep at night. 
um, instead of that rest that that restless sleep, and then also to control the cataplexy because not all of the medications are going to control cataplexy. So two questions with the sodium oxalate. One is that I know you had mentioned that you got a more restful sleep. Right. Did you feel like there was a reduction in cataplexy with the sodium oxalate? And two, yes. Okay, and and then two, yeah. What did you feel about having to do twice nightly dosing? Um, both great questions. Um, and actually, we actually reference that ASM guidelines in our group. It's something I try to disseminate every week so that people can take that to their physicians so that they can have conversations about what's available. Um, but as far as yeah, so sodium oxalate did reduce my cataplexy, so I, there wasn't as much uh, of the the flat affect at night, the, the slack jaw or the um, the sword speech weren't at, that wasn't as pervasive. Um, you know, I didn't feel quite as clumsy. Um, you know, the medication wears off very quickly. There, I did miss doses with the twice nightly formulation, and it probably more frequently than. Um, the companies would, would, would carry for you to know, but it's a common occurrence. You know, you, you sleep through, you miss. I usually would sit up pretty quickly once the, the first dose mm-hmm. were off after about two and a half or three hours and be able to take my second dose, but that wasn't always the case. Um, and nothing quite, quite as demoralizing as waking up and realizing you missed the window on taking your second dose, and now you're going to have to navigate kind of with, with half the sleep volume that, that you typically were used to um and so i'm looking forward to you know to the the day when we do have that once nightly formulation i think avidel avidel just announced that they're yeah in early stage or like pre-approval process i believe it was i forget yeah it's a, a tentative approval yeah, is, that's is how they, they they drafted the language which is a, a rare occurrence for, for a branded medication to receive but um without jumping down that rabbit hole too much as far as the reasons why I'm really optimistic about what that can mean for the community. You know, I love hearing about options. I'm, I'm going to be speaking with the FDA um, on a patient-focused drug development um, discussion down the road. Um, and it's, we, we do need more, you know, options, whether it be a Rexin agonist somewhere down the road. Um, I know there's a couple, couple companies working towards that, but yeah, more options. For me, the better yeah. um, wanting to to make sure that we're hitting, you know, because it's it's you know once nightly would answer a lot of questions. Reduced sodium uh, formulation that that is Zywave also helps a lot with with some of the issues that were associated with, you know, the, the sodium content. So it sounds like if not for kind of the sleepwalking, you'd probably still be on the Zyrum then. Yeah, there, there was some um, hyperhidrosis that was associated okay. as well, just the excessive sleep, uh, sweating at night. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely something I've, I've talked with my doctor about, about it, you know, giving another shot, um, especially now that my kids are older. I'm, I'm in a relationship and live with, with my partner. So, you know, there would be an extra person here to help navigate that. Um, but yeah, it's for me, when I when, when someone comes into group, you know, we, we don't ever offer medical advice. But if someone has a question about sodium oxalate, it's like, please talk to your doctor because it's changed so many lives. And I think it, it would be something that I see it often as a first-line treatment. Um, Wake it has also been discussed um, by many people in our groups as the only medication. Yeah. I, it also has catalytic purposes. I, I, right. I was just going to ask you that question. I was like, did you, do you feel like um, 
Wakex has redu- reduced your cataplexia at least a little bit as well. Um, yeah, I, I I would say for for sure it has. Um, just in terms, especially in terms of the the intensity and uh, severity uh, of the, any cataplexy, we yet to have a, anything close to a full body episode or, or just a drop since I've been on. I I did recently actually, I I started someone on on Wakex for um, idiopathic hypersomnia and. After you know nothing else worked for them, so they tried just about every other medication. I was I was about to try flumazenil actually, yeah. if the wake kicks didn't work. Um, and I I spoke to them uh, about a week ago because I gotten a, a prescription because you have to do the I have to write the prescription by hand every time. Um, yeah. So I, I got it and I was like, oh, let me let me check on them because um, it was a first refill and I was like, let me let me before I write this, let me just call them and see how they're doing. And they were like, this has like been life changing. Like, yeah, I'm still tired, but I'm not, I'm not napping during the day anymore and I can make it through. And I was like, oh, wow, we finally found something that worked. Um, so that was, that's good. It's hopeful. I'm glad that they have these two new medications, um, for, for excessive daytime sleepiness. I think that's, it's, it's good. More options, as you said, would be great. Um, but, uh, you know, the, we're heading, I think in the right direction. Uh, and I think that work that work that you do being an advocate really helps to drive the conversation. Um, so I think that's that's really beneficial. Well, it's, it's definitely my honor to to be a part of those conversations. Um, it's what, nice to have greedy capitalist pharmaceuticals that <laughs> still want to make new things. You know, I, I yeah, I, I, I do appreciate them because they do develop a lot of stuff that ends up yeah being very helpful. Nothing, and the, mm-hmm. no, nothing's coming out. Well, whatever. But um, did you? I don't mean to change. I don't no, know if you want to talk no, no. more about medications. I did have a question, you know, like, cause we, mm-hmm. over a career, you may manage a handful of narcoleptic patients and comfort levels with these new drugs. You know, if you've done it once, you've done it, you know, you're not really comfortable, comfortable with prescribing them much like other drugs where we prescribe on a daily basis. Did you have mm-hmm. a difficult time finding a sleep physician that was comfortable managing your narcolepsy? That's a good um, question. No, you know, I was, I was, I had, yeah, there was a time, a transition. So my original sleep physician retired after about seven or eight years. And I immediately felt panicked because it was, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to develop a relationship with a new physician who's going to be able to, to, you know, to, to build that trust, um, you know, due to the nature of the medications to make sure that they'll, they'll hear me. Um, and I, I went to one, another physician wasn't a good personality fit. And then my next choice um, actually was um, one of the future presidents of the ASM. Um, and um, I, I don't actually want to name, name names. Yeah. No, I'm trying yeah, to think. But you're, you're in Tennessee. In Nashville. In Nashville um, would have been a pa- in the past three. Um, okay. But, I, I, the, so. but they were able, I kind of named her. Uh, she won't mind. She gives me permission <laughs> to talk about that. But the, but the fact is, she, I, I just have never felt more heard in a, in an office than I, than I did with her. Like, you know, it's before COVID, it was a hug and a high five, you know, every appointment, especially if it was me making sure that I was, I was keeping, you know, my sleep health as a priority, um, that I was, you know, pushing forward and trying to, to, to live my best life as a single dad at that time, um, or during that time of, of my life. And, that just support but also even as an experienced advocate you know i I would go into an office maybe after having sat in the the doctor's office for for 30 minutes after traveling for an hour and how are you doing that 
And my answer would be fine. And then she might ask three or four other follow-up questions and she will go, I'm just going to call you out on something. You said you were fine, but then you proceeded to list four different major life events that were happening at the same time. Um, how is your medicine doing? And so to, to have trust in someone who can kind of get more out of you um, and, and to ask the right questions has been very helpful. But it's scary when, when, when you have to you know, transfer to a new sleep doctor because that's what keeps me functional. I, I'm able to wake up and be a dad. I'm able to keep a, a, a flexible full-time position because of the medications that, that are available. And so to, to have a concern about that's a huge deal. Do you, um, and this may not be applicable for you, but do you feel, did you see physicians in both a private setting and an academic setting? And if so, do you feel like there's a difference in terms of your, because again, you know, narcolepsy is not as common. Do you feel like there was a, a difference in terms of treatment in an academic center versus a private center? Um, I, I did go to a private center for a while. Um, I, I, you know, I've had such success in, in the private practice setting that it, that it's hard to, um, just the outside of that. Although I, I love the idea, I'm going to be giving a, um, a presentation in, in August at, here in Nashville with, with Project Sleep, and we're going to be meeting with some of the Vanderbilt physicians, sharing alongside them. Um, and, and I love the idea of what the academic institutions are doing, helping to advance the cause. Um, so yeah, at the same time, I, I see the, the advantages of, of both sides of that. Okay. And they then, do get more time typically in the academic setting. So that might certainly be, do. Yeah, yeah. It's one yeah. of those kind of double-edged swords there. Um, but you were diagnosed in the private sector originally? Yes. And yeah, you had, was, you um, had, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. Yeah. It was, I, I saw somebody in the private sector. I made the appointment myself thinking that it, it was a, my mom had sleep apnea and I did, but it was, yeah, it was a, a that doctor spent an abundance of time with me as well. And again, to your point about having more time in the, the academic setting, one of the things that stood out about the private practice is these two doctors also do a good job of spending time. Good. So yeah. I think to that point, yeah, the time is a huge, huge part of this. Did you, on your, on your initial diagnosis, um, did you do, so you did PSG, MSLT. Did you also Correct. do actigraphy as well with it? Um, no, I didn't. Do, it was, yeah, it was in... 07 um okay. th there was yeah there wasn't a lot of you know it was just the the psg um we had already scheduled the mslt assuming that it was gonna that was gonna be necessary um you know kind of classic manifestation of narcolepsy um he jokes with me that i aced the test um <laughs> i actually say i've saved a copy of some of my um the, of my results of the um the actual um uh, brain waves and what was going on um it's kind of a um a hat tip to, to the work that we did and just that almost that medication can be like an art in some way. Um, but yeah, it was, that, that's what we focused on at the time. All right. I think John, do you have any other questions? Well, I mean, I was just curious, like, um, was it, there was no, I don't know how much detail you'd want to go in about your test results, <laughs> but you know, um, you know, going into the study, did you have any symptoms of sleep apnea that, you know, someone might misdiagnose you um, like snoring um, pauses or were you heavy or? It was, I, you know, I actually put on, so I ended up getting this, a sleep apnea diagnosis about seven years later. So I had a, a clinically insignificant sleep apnea okay. um, was the determination on the PSG um, in, in 07. And 
it was it you know i looked back and looked at the results and it, it, yeah it was it was so mild that it, it didn't warrant cpap use right. the weight some weight gain over time um you know probably definitely contributed to it i have made the joke before that and when it comes to weightlifting that um i saw that the rock didn't have a neck and so i said neither do i and then when i told my sleep doctor that she she looked horrified she said that was a horrible idea matthew um, and I was like, yeah, but I don't have a neck now. Um, so I guess there's, there's some, some pluses and minuses, but yeah, it was, it definitely, you know, I'm a hundred percent CPAP compliant. It's my, I, I call it my best friend outside of my, my partner. You know, if I sleep, it's right there with me and we're, we're working together to make sure that I, I keep myself breathing. That's interesting that, cause I know, I mean, <clears throat> I know some practitioners have the view that if there's any sleep apnea, you cannot make a diagnosis of. Yeah, narcolepsy strict. regard regardless <laughs> of how, how severe it is um or how mild it is so like anything above an ahi of five that would be like let's do that first and then repeat all the testing yeah. and then yeah. you know stay after stimulant for two weeks no yeah. antidepressants yeah how right i mean it see the mslt is one of those it's easy to screw it up oh yeah from <laughs> you know you forget to do your urine talk screen you yep. forget a few steps there and it's you then you start to question whether it was accurate right. or not. It's easy to invalidate the test. And I, I do feel that like patients with narcolepsy get the testing done over and over and over again because like as John said, oh, there's a, a missing Utox. So it's like, oh well, were they on any Medicaid? We don't know that. So we yeah. don't we can't say that there wasn't a a drug that was causing them to be excessively tired or there was no actigraphy. What was their sleep like the two weeks leading up to, you know, is this just insufficient right. sleep sy syndrome manifesting? I see a lot of these come in from the private sector, not to knock on them. It's, it's, this is not a knock. This is happens with the military too, but they're just a lot of missing pieces. And then someone either is false positive or false negative. Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, it's, and I get it. It's a hard test to do. Um, did you end up having to do multiple or I guess you did. So, you only did one. Yeah. Well, I had, uh, yeah, one MSLT, um, and we talk so often in group about the frustrations with the MSLT, and, and to really echoing everything you just said, you know, someone didn't discontinue a medication, you know, so they were still on a rib suppressant, um, you know, antidepressant med, and so it skewed the results. Right. I think for me, you know, it, I was between a five and a six on my AHI, um, okay. you know, the, the first time around, and then there was cataplexy present. Um, you know, I, I went and got my HLA gene detected, and you know, I know that that's not a definitive um, yes that I, I have, um, you know, narcolepsy because percentage of the population does. But, you know, looking back, you know, it was it was enough evidence over time. Yeah, it was a definite in one well, case. But, yeah, to, but to your point, it's tough to stop yeah. stimulus, you know. Antidepressants. Yeah, it's always kind of like, yeah. yeah, you need these so you don't have a car accident while you're driving. You need them to work and you're depressed, but you need to stop these for two weeks before your study. Yeah, it's exactly. put your life on pause. It's a tough one. I feel like I've been doing seeing it a lot more since I moved to the VA just because of the, the comorbid, you know, PTSD and, and anxiety and depression. And it's it's really, you know, some of the patients are like, I can't, I'm not going to come yeah, I, I'm not, not coming off. It. I'm not coming off the medication. Yeah. So then it's like, well, what do we do? And, you know, you know, there is a, you know, a lot of, and again, a lot of people that we see already have sleep apnea. So it's, you know, there's a diagnosis of excessive daytime sleepiness despite PAP therapy, which is still treated. And, you know, with, with wake promoting agents um, that, you know, I think it's reasonable to, to treat, treat, yeah, treat to, clinically, to treat clinically, um, you know, 
uh, you can't always bring everybody in to test. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, it's yeah. just not not always, at least in our population, it's not practical. But we don't have to deal with justifying everything to the insurance companies. So that's a different, a totally different sometimes approach. Sometimes that drives things we do that don't make sense. Look at, <laughs> look at Medicare, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example. You know, repeating sleep studies after sleep studies. Yeah, yeah. To get a to get a device, it's it's a little bit. That's a separate topic, but. <laughs> <laughs> I well, it's I, I tell you, you guys can have a whole like more than an hour discussing the the PSG and MSLT. Um, it, you know, we we, we joke about calling it the gold standard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it's it's a gold standard because there's no other standards. Um, you know, that's widely accepted. But it's a fragile um, gold standard. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was about to make a joke about the economy, but I will refrain. Um, but uh, yeah, the one of the things that you know, just kind of as as we're wrapping up, um, you know, we Project Sleep Julie was able to articulate this very well, and I like to borrow it from her um, to make sure I always give her credit. But when I talk to people who are newly diagnosed, we we discuss um, we call it the four pillars of narcolepsy treatment. So you've got your medication, you know, that's that comes in with you guys. The naps we we've referenced that as well. Um, you know, lifestyle adjustments, um, making sure that, that you're exhibiting the, the proper sleep hygiene approach. That, that word I know can be a little bit tricky even now, but make sure you're, you're getting the, the good total sleep time and that you're, you know, staying away from device, um, you know, mobile device usage. But the social support is something that has been so essential, both for me and then also as I see it continuously, you know, twice a week, people coming in, oh my gosh, this is one of the best things I've done. Because you, to your point you made at the very beginning, there aren't a lot of people out there living with narcolepsy. And so to connect with somebody that actually can understand and relate has so many positive impacts, you know, whether it be finding out information and resources to just crying because it's hard, you know, and, and that's where social support can be so valuable. So, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to come on here and, and shoot the breeze and talk about this because, you know, you, you guys already are having those conversations expectation wise. So just appreciate this opportunity tremendously. Well, yeah. I, I really like that four pillars there. You got there. I'm going to yeah, steal that. Steal that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, we can, you know, I think uh, every practice could use a, a support group to refer their patients to and help them manage expectations. Um, so thanks for coming on. Yeah. I really appreciate you having, I guess the last question I would ask you before we wrap yeah. up is and hopefully my phone doesn't die here because I know we're chatting on phone. I didn't charge it earlier today. Um, is what from as a patient, what, what would you want from us as clinicians? Like, what can um, we do better for you? Making sure, you know, when I was out, it was, here's a prescription. You have narcolepsy. You know, I feel like it's gotten better. There's more resources available in the nonprofit, but, but understanding that this is, it also impacts family. You know, it's a, it, a familial diagnosis almost, you know, it impacts my kids, it impacts my partner. Um, but making sure that, again, you, you've mentioned expectations, helping them understand this is a lifelong diagnosis. You're going to have to make sure that you prioritize sleep um, and, and that you also understand it, will, it can possibly impact your, your, your mental health. And yeah, just be, be sympathetic listen, take an extra five minutes. I know that you guys are very, you know, busy with your schedules, but just asking the extra questions sometimes can make all the difference in the world between finding the right answer and finding an answer. So that, 
that would be my, my takeaway. That's a, uh, we'll take that to heart. I do appreciate your feedback there. I mean, we're always looking at ways to, to improve our practice as well. So um, I feel like we could have talked a lot more. We didn't even touch pathophysiology or, you know, Thank any, God. yeah, I know we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't really get into any of like the nitty gritty. And we probably do that as a focused discussion on, you know, idiopath or central disorders of hypersomnia. Uh, that's more clinically focused, but <clears throat> there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot more we could have talked about, but I think we're, we've, we've run our course in terms of time uh, for the day. So I uh, just, Matt, really want to thank you um, for, for coming on and, and speaking to us uh, and, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to meet up uh, in person at one of these sleep conferences soon. You missed out. Me and Jesse went over and got some fried chicken uh, in, yeah. in North Carolina. So, well, I'm, I'm, Jesse owes us next time. I mean, he's going to have to buy brisket. Oh, that's um, right. Or, or we'll be in Indy, but we'll figure out. But yeah, yeah he, I'll, I'm sure he'll pick up the tab. Um, okay. I'll actually tell him that tonight. So, all right. Um, all right. Thank you guys so much. All right, take it was an honor. All right. Thanks. All right.